0: Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at dtcpod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to Trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG Organic Creative. Use the code DTCpod10 for 10% off your next content purchase. Are you curious how much your business is worth? Get your free no-obligation offer from OpenStore at Open.Store. This episode of DTC Pod is also brought to you by Peel Insights, the e-commerce analytics platform that supercharges all of your retention efforts every day and with every customer. Go to PeelInsights.com slash DTC Pod to learn how hundreds of e-commerce brands use Peel to reveal purposeful insights like LTV, AOV, repurchase rate, churn, and hundreds of metrics more. See how brands are nurturing deeper customer relationships with easy-to-use retention tools, that hyper-target and provide immediate growth. The subscription market is predicted to grow nearly $500 billion by 2025. ReCharge is the leading subscription management solution, helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by ReCharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC Pod. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Victoria Eisner, who is the co-founder of Glam Squad. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Glam Squad is a really popular um, beauty services platform um, that Victoria had started. So, Victoria, why don't you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about um, Glam Squad, what the company was about, um, and a little bit background about yourself.
1: Sure. So, Glam Squad is an on-demand beauty delivery business. That means we come to your home, your hotel room, wherever you are to do hair, makeup, and nails. Um, And, you know, it's it's incredibly high-quality, convenient service, for an affordable price point in the comfort of your own home you can feel the same way that like a celebrity gets ready you can get ready just like that too but for a much um, better price point point. and then i don't know cool so the,
0: basically the no so the, so the basic concept is like you're at your home and you want to get your hair hair na- makeup Done, And rather than having to go to a salon, you can order um, a service and one of your beauty professionals will come to the home, be able to do you up in the home. um, And then you can kind of go about your evening and you guys are essentially the marketplace between the service providers and the customers. Is that an accurate representation?
1: Yeah, that's right. So I thought of the company. It was New Year's Eve. I was getting ready uh, for a party and I was like ubering my car seamlessing my dinner and i was literally in the shower thinking i my my hair is a frizzy mess i hate doing my hair it's so annoying and i wished i could get an appointment at a at a blowout salon i i actually couldn't get an appointment and i thought you know i'm getting everything else delivered to me why can't i get this delivered to me this is so important i need somebody i need the help with my hair um and I thought for sure this has to exist so I googled it and and of course it didn't and you know I just started building it right then and there basically I wrote the business plan the next day like in bed like kind of hungover from the party um and that was that was you know it was really off to the races it ended up being quite a fortuitous business model because it's a dual sided marketplace of um like a large category of people, beauty professionals who don't necessarily or didn't necessarily get paid on like a very regular schedule or have a very predictable workflow. So we could utilize um, you know their time when they maybe weren't getting the big gigs and like the the big money um, and provide them with interim income to make their Um, you know lives a better place and then also it increased flexibility in their schedules perhaps you know these uh, stylists didn't enjoy having um, they didn't enjoy like having you know what we like to call salon drama um, or or you know what everybody else knows as office politics Um, and that's Uh, I mean, it ended up working out quite well. And people really enjoy, um, our stylists really enjoy being their own boss. It's a very selective process to get on the Glam Squad team. Um, So, you know, we really put quality at the forefront of the
0: brand. Um, Yeah, I think what you're talking about, about like having the inspiration to start the business and being like, oh my God, how doesn't this exist? Let's go for it. I think that is something that most people could probably resonate with because at the surface level, it makes sense, right? You're like, okay, we w- I want to be able to get services done in my home. That's going to be an easier experience than having to go to the salon in some cases if there isn't. You know, some people might be all about going to the salon, but other, others might just want to get their services done in the home, Um so I think it seems like a very, uh, in hindsight, like an obvious sort of need that the market would kind of be able to support. But I think in any marketplace, the hard part isn't the idea of like, oh, this should exist. The hard part is actually building that marketplace. Um, and in a lot of instances, marketplaces of this sort, these two sided ones tend to be supply driven. So um what was the motion like in the beginning? Did you have like one stylist, or like how did you start to build the supply side of this marketplace out um, at the earliest of of days?
1: So that's pretty much one of the first things we did, um, I and I was kind of in charge of it. So we hired um, like a cre- like a like a head of hair um from from frederick fakai but once a week we basically there wasn't any service to do this but we like um you know we air we we didn't airbnb the salon but we negotiated with a salon owner to utilize his salon like when he was he he had it closed so i think every monday we would go and we had to like Get a bunch of hair models and get a bunch of like stylists who wanted to work for our brand and we weren't ready to like necessarily be public with it yet so we had like a fake name and we posted a Craigslist ad and like it was so crazy to organize all of these hair models because like you could only get your hair blown out so many times um and Then we would audition the stylists and have them come back and then we would add a layer of training onto them It was about uh I think we started off with maybe 10 stylists, but um, you're completely correct that it's totally supply driven because the stylists would get upset if there wasn't enough work for them And obviously like you're just starting out as a business, you're fledgling, like you don't really have like a lot of customers like at the beginning or like you don't have like the flow at the beginning. So you, like we were, we were basically, um like oh my god they're they're leaving if we don't give them enough work like we better get customers like now to give them work like otherwise all our hard work is just totally gone so a lot of um you know a lot of energy went to keeping the stylists happy and then a lot of energy went to keeping the customers happy and like to keep both uh people happy uh was was uh, quite challenging um, and a lot of work.
0: No, I think that's something that's really important. So, um, and it's something like we went through too. So like my business was seated and we were a marketplace between customers and restaurants, right? And I remember the first restaurants that we had on board, we were like, okay, great. Now we got, we've got we got these restaurants, right? And now we have to like put butts in their seats. And so I remember there would be times where like we would be literally like have it paying our own team to go out like, hey, dinner's on us, just go out and eat at these restaurants to keep them happy, make sure they know they're getting business. And I think this is probably one of the hardest parts about building a marketplace in the early days is you convince the supply side that they should be on your platform, you're going to help give them more business. And then you've built this relationship, you built all this excitement, but then you also have to manage the demand cuz in the earliest of stages it's not like you have like crazy customer demand because you're a brand new service right so you need to be able to like manage it and make sure that you're the people who took a bet on you you're you, on the supply side in the early days you're sending them enough business to like keep things moving and start that flywheel turning where then you know customers start to refer other customers organically you start you can layer in some paid growth and then all of a sudden, one day you look up and you're like, okay, this marketplace is kind of actually running itself. Right. So, um, I guess the question that I would have, um, in terms of like those early, the early stage sort of things is like, where, where were you getting your customers? You said you had to like go out and you're like, we have these 10, um, stylists on and we've trained up and they're looking for work. So like, where did you go to customers? Um, were you, you know, were you, Was this cold traffic? Was it like people you knew? Was it, um, you know, where'd you get them?
1: It was a little bit of both. Basically, it was friends of friends. So we had, so we built up like this stockpile of stylists and they all started getting very angry. Like, so when are we working? And we realized like we had to, you know, like put up or shut up. So um, I sent an email to a 100 friends and friends of friends basically people who I knew had disposable income who were like high maintenance women who like definitely were beauty girls and probably already got blowouts anyways who lived in um Manhattan uh and that's what I looked towards it was friends and friends of friends and I like i built this business for people like me like i knew that if i had this problem that i couldn't coordinate a salon visit that and it was inconvenient for me like i didn't even have i don't have kids or anything like that like it could have been very easy but i just always thought getting ready is completely a full-time job um especially when you're going from place to place and event to event especially in like big cities so um you know there were plenty of other people like me and and you know it still rings true people always want to look good and when they look good they feel good and they get more things done
0: yeah and i think that's when when you're thinking about a marketplace the the signal that you were looking for was the fact that you're like there are people who are already getting blowouts so like and getting like their hair done and services done like this so like the stretch that you're making it's like you're not teaching them a new behavior or something and that was something even for us at seated in the early days when it was hard to necessarily get the customer demand we're like wait a minute like people already go to restaurants we're not like reinventing a new habit for them it's just slightly different in terms of like the booking flow and maybe the process in the restaurant but like because we knew that there was existing demand for those services it made it easier to be able to drum up the um the demand side of the marketplace um next question i had is just in terms of like background um you know you obviously you had the idea and you're like okay I'm um, here's the business plan i'm gonna go start this thing but what was your background um before starting glam squad that gave you conviction to know that you'd be able to pull something like this off and who were some of the first people like how did you start um like who'd you start the business with so
1: Nothing really in my, I mean, I, I worked, I went to law school, I was, a, I worked for Martha Stewart for a period of time and I just knew that building a brand was really important and like if I could build a, you know, like I looked up to her and like what she had built and so I thought like if I can build a brand umbrella, like you can really put a lot of different things under this umbrella and uh, people look to the brand as something cool um, or something that they want. They know that the brand is like an arbiter of taste. Um, And then, you know, I didn't really have any kind of beauty background. i I don't know if I said this, but I went to law school. Um I hadn't really not like a business background. i I was working as a holistic nutritionist at the time. I had honestly was a freelancer myself. I realized that it is incredibly difficult. For people who are freelancers, to um, to not only do the job that they're actually good at or that they actually want to be doing, but also to do the administrative tasks, the operational tasks, uh, getting clients, the business development, keeping the flywheel of clients moving. Um, you know, all of that accounting, taxes, whatever it is, all of these other things that are really like heavily involved in a business are extremely difficult. And I thought, you know, I'm really smart and this is really hard for me to do. I can't believe that there are so many other like some like such a large class of of professionals doing this other thing. That helps people transform in in a very quick, quick order, quick, short order. And they must have problems doing it too. Like this can't be, this can't be like just a crazy thought of mine.
0: Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah, keep going.
1: Oh, I forgot where, where I was going.
0: No worries. Um, and then how did you guys like how do you think about funding in the early days right obviously um you know you're gonna have customers who are paying for services to that you'll be able to pay out to the stylist but like what what was it like in terms of like setting the market price for these services was it the same thing that they normally did was this uh subsidized marketplace at all did you guys raise any funding early on what did what did that part of the business look like early on
1: So we started uh, getting revenue in month three because we had, we built up this team of stylists and they wanted to work. So we started, you know, deploying them to customers and also we like found out what our pricing was through that process. So initially we sent it out for free and that was like week one, it was free. We did it on like a Google sheet. It was horrible. Like, it wasn't horrible. The service was great. Like, I got it done the first time and I was like, this is amazing because, um, you know, like, after you shower, I like to chill. Like, I don't like to have to go somewhere or, like, and then you can leave the house and you're all perfectly put together as opposed to coming back from a salon appointment. You may, like, sweat on the subway or, you know, like, just, like, be exposed to the elements. Like you just leave and, and you're perfect, it's amazing. So um, we basically went, sorry, I totally lost track of the, the question. You got quiet.
0: Oh, sorry about that. Just in terms of thinking about how you got to like pricing and revenue and how you worked that okay. off in the early okay. days. So, so, yeah.
1: Yeah, I can go for that. So the first week was completely free. The second week, And some people booked and some people didn't of this list of 100. The second week, we're like, let's charge. Um, And we did the same, again, the Google sheet. And, I mean, at this point, we realized, like, you know, maybe we need a system or something. Um, So we charged 25 bucks. Again, some people booked, some people didn't. And then we asked all the people who didn't book why they didn't book. Like we're like, this is a free blowout. You get a blowout anyways. Like, what's wrong? What's wrong with you? Like you're crazy. Um, all the people who had booked it the first week were like for free. We're like, why isn't it still free? We're like, we're a business, we have to make money. And then the people who were reluctant to book at $25, and then we had new people come into the fold and they were recommended. By our original class, we had new people come into the like the twenty five dollar week. A lot of people also didn't book. We started asking, "Why aren't you booking?" They're like, "It's too cheap. It sounds like it's going to be disgusting or horrible." So we knew kind of then. I I was always thinking, "Let's just mark it up a little bit above the the brick and mortar price," um and that's what we ended up doing at the time. Like a dry bar blowout was. 35 or 40 bucks and we charged 50 um and so we had like $150 week and that's where it stayed for quite a while. I think now it's at 60. You know, it's really the same service that I dreamed up in the shower. So, it's you know, it's the same thing, the same the same ethos of the business, it still exists. Um, but that's where we landed on pricing. It's just a little bit more expensive than the um the salons, but we also uh, added a 20% tip on top of on top of the fee that automatically went to the stylist. So the stylist got uh, that 20% consistently and at this time people, you know, you you if you worked in a salon, you might not be getting though that consistent level of tips. People might be, I don't know, European or whatever, or just bad tippers or whatever. And, um, you know, that was really their livelihood. And at that time also, like, a dry bar, a typical dry bar employee was making, like, $9 an hour and living on those tips. So um, that obviously is nothing. Um, and, you know, it's it's sad that, like, that is, like, what, what like, that is considered, like, even, like, a... decent wage so you know we definitely worked harder to make a better wage for our stylists and give them a really you know nice piece of the pie and and that was really exciting because it was really creating jobs that were you know like you could make a decent income you could have the freedom that you wanted to you could do what you loved and perhaps you didn't have the most amazing business development skills perhaps you weren't the most outgoing stylists you know in town but maybe your technical skills were incredible and you're really sweet but you know maybe you're just not that outgoing typically like the most successful typically successful stylists are ones who have really amazing business development skills their, their technical skills can be good are good but you know they don't have to be that great they're just better at building their book of business
0: and another thing that i think is really cool about marketplaces early on is that um when you're what you're essentially doing is you're a matchmaker between a supply side and a demand side and in the early days like you're saying you could run this thing off almost like a google sheet or an email list or something like this where you've got your core group of um of stylists and then you have like a a new group of like customers who are starting to come in but if you'll be able to start to see that like okay there is a marketplace here and there there are bookings happening and this is what people want and then you can actually go and start to productize that match between the supply and demand right so early on you know what did productizing this in the early days look like like did you you know what kind of website did you build did you have to build a pay uh, a payment system did you have to build something uh that was like software for the stylus that you had on like what in terms of like building out uh components of your you know your digital system what did that look like
1: so obviously we did that test run for the pricing and then you know the stylists were bringing back cash and we were just thinking this is not what we want to do like this is so stupid uh we need a system we absolutely need a system so we looked around for salon booking software and then we all so we used something off the shelf but we rigged it because we needed something that was a bit more customized for us and then we um we basically had our app being so First, we had, like, a, it's, like, what I like to call, like, dental floss and tape. Like, when you're doing proof-of-concept stuff, you can't really invest that heavily into, you know, software. And at that time, like, everything was, you know, very code-heavy and, like, fancy and, like, took forever and was, like, super-duper expensive. So we didn't want to, you know, shell out a big chunk of change for software. So what we did was we kind of, like, you know scissor and taped it together from like an existing system we had originally when we we had a website and we always knew we wanted the app so we were building the app concurrent like simultaneously but you know like that was kind of like on a payment system or whatever like we were like developing it a little bit you know it took a little while to develop it so from the um and then in our app, we really used – I mean, we said it was proprietary technology, but really the back-end system was an off-the-shelf thing, and we used a bunch of APIs to make it our own. And then now we have a more bespoke system, and, like, it's fancier, and we have, like, a beauty professionals app. But the truth of the matter is, is I think now, like, if you're looking to build something, there are so many – um easy ways around it or ways you can plug things in or bridge all the gaps and um you know like you don't have to invest that heavily into like now I just think it's so much easier before even like getting like a scheduling software like what did not exist and like mobile payments and like stuff like that also did not exist like it was revolutionary that we were um taking credit cards for for tips for stylists like that was a big deal and also like the stylists really pushed back on that because they were like what are you talking about like i want my cash so you know it's like i think you have it's kind of like pushing a rock uphill but um you know you find out what you need and, and kind of like work around it and then build it to, to, to your, you know, specifications.
0: Yeah. And just knowing that like in the early days, the most important part isn't necessarily the technology. It's more just making sure that the, on both sides of your marketplace, like the service that you're presenting checks out. Cause I think where a lot of marketplaces go wrong is they'll, you know, try to make a big bet. And even, at scale if they're like financing the marketplace to grow it and grow it and grow it like they may not have unit unit economics that actually check out the right way by the time they reach scale right so thinking about the most important thing before you start thinking about productizing before building software and building all these crazy systems is like fundamentally do i have a supply side where if this marketplace is created they're going to be happy uh, Cause they're obviously like going to be the most important and the demand side whose price and service is going to be competitive. I think for you guys, it makes a lot of sense um, because you, like you're saying, these people could the, on the supply side, they could be getting extra work. They're making a comparable rate, if not like more to what they're making in, in the salon as is. Um, and it's just like, it's kind of like a win-win sort of marketplace where, you know, in the case of uber or something and why they've run into so many problems is they're like okay to run this business sure we can like finance and subsidize all these rides all the way up people like feel like it's really cheap but when rubber meets the road and you have to pay out the drivers you have to pay the services to run the the, the company and everything else it's like okay what is the real uh the real market price of that ride is it the same as a taxi is it more is it less like you know these are the kind of questions that if you can solve early on, that's just gonna add fuel to the fire of the marketplace. So um, moving on from from there, one thing I wanted to talk about was, uh, and this is something that you kind of alluded to earlier, is like how important it is to um, make sure that your stylists are happy, right? So as you start to scale beyond 10 stylists, what does stylist success look like for you? How are you making sure that they have a, um, you know, that you're managing all those relationships as you scale so that they're happy uh and that they stay with you and want to keep providing services with you guys on the platform
1: so i think that was probably one of the biggest challenges to do because you know like there it's it's definitely an artistic like stylists are definitely artistic people like they want to like they all kind of have Different personalities, and they like being themselves, which is amazing. But it's also, you know, they're also like it, we were like a t- kind of like a tech company, and these are people who are working with their hands. So we we're like asking them like, how come you didn't check your emails, and like you didn't get the answer to the text messages, and they're like, yeah, because I'm you know blowing out this person's hair or doing this person's makeup like I don't I'm not in front of a computer like waiting for an email to pop up or anything like that so uh you know we had to definitely like teach some behaviors of like hey really gotta check your emails and stuff like that we had to really have amazing communication between our customer service teams and the stylists because the logistics can get so crazy, especially on like busy seasons or busy uh, days. Um, you know, it's 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 hectic, um, and like just getting from place to place, you know, there can be delays. It's it's normal. It's natural. So, um, you know, putting out fires is is equally important, and to really cultivate the community, I think we worked hard on not only uh selecting really incredibly talented stylists but also developing their skills giving them continuing education providing them with really cool experiences and in like uh, matching them with really cool like we would always have like very cool brands come in and give them stuff and um you know have like you know super cool celebrity clients maybe they're not getting that type of exposure when they're, you know, like working it I mean a lot of them worked in very different places. Some of them worked fashion week, some of them didn't. But to get to work a fashion week was exciting or to get to, you know, um, you know, go to like Paris Hilton's house was really exciting and, you know, you might have been just like a, a salon at like a place in Queens or in the Valley or something. So there is you know, we gave them a lot of opportunities and we also really focused on continuing education and and career development and making sure that their skills were the best of the best and that they're getting, uh, you know, real support and also having, you know, some fun events to really recognize their work and um, make them feel like they're part of a community because I think that was also a really important quality and a really important... Uh, aspect like everyone kind of likes to feel like they're a part of something so you know recognizing employees or or um like the people who work for you uh is 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 really critical and it's it's you know easy to do it's not a big deal
0: yeah and I think that I think that having an approach of education and having an approach of um, really taking the quality control of your, uh, your, in your case, your stylist, like taking that really seriously is very important because at the end of the day, your customer experience and the experiences that your customers are having are like, they're out of your hands, right? You're just the marketplace layer that's facilitating the, facilitating these two relationships. And in your case, it's also a very intimate sort of thing. You have people who are coming into, you know, the, the actual home and doing the hair and like touching you and like right? It's like very, it's a very personal thing. So really making sure that not only are the stylists educated, but you have a real strict and stringent guidelines for quality control, who's involved, what it takes to become a stylist and be able to provide services on this platform. Something that's obviously going to be of utmost importance, right?
1: Yeah. And I mean, we also kind of like help them or, or like increase their level, like levels of professionalism. Like we had really You know, like, should I take my shoes off? Which hand you should shake their hand with? Uh, How to introduce yourself properly? Just, you know, it's little bells and whistles, little touches. But um, handling a customer in, like, a really nice way and a really, like, kind of nice, consistent, high-end way is a great skill set to have. And also, you know, like, it helps you improve. And then even even from going to, like, going from, like, uh, like really having the stylist listen to the client feedback and and say like you know where what are you doing tonight or where are you you know like like is there anything you would change if if you know like is there anything you would change with your style then you can get the real feedback and to actually listen to that and not um, not be so you know like like. To, to take time to listen to that and and to really like understand the customer's feedback as opposed to just like You know deer and headlights it
0: Yeah, and I I think another thing there that really jumps out is the fact that you guys You know you're approaching it from a lens of hospitality But i'm sure that like when you started this the first thing in your head wasn't like Oh, we're gonna tell all our stylists to do this and then have the same procedure on the shoes and then the right questions asked but as this, as the service starts to become more repeatable and repeatable, and as it starts to grow, then you start thinking about all these like little touches that can create that, uh, that brand experience, if you will. So every time they're getting a glam squad, uh, stylist that it feels like diff, it, it feels like it's coming from the same brand. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, we thought about all of this stuff um like from the beginning is the truth of the matter just because we wanted it to feel luxurious we wanted it to feel fancy even though it's like in the comfort of your own home and you know this is at a time when like it was kind of hard to build a brand when you're thinking of like there wasn't Instagram stories back then there wasn't like things where you can like show your experience um That just didn't really like 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 exist like at the outset. So it was you know it's a lot harder to promote with like a static photo, Um, and like you know also like what's the meaning behind that? So you know I think all of those types of things are are really important and also just really listening to the customer and 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 really understanding what they want, and also, even listening to your stylist, you have to listen to both sides of the marketplace because they're really um they they would say like, "Hey, you know, we want more of this or we want more interaction with each other. We want to be able to to ha- feel like there is a community here. They asked for it next, so, you know was something we delivered. You no, know,
0: a hundred percent. And and Victoria, the next question that I'd have is around um, markets, right? Because the I think one of the hardest things in these types of marketplaces is the fact that once you've like you've done it in New York, per se, you're like, okay, we We're going to create this marketplace in New York. And then all of a sudden you're growing, growing, growing. And it's like, okay, now I have to open up an entirely new city, right? And it's almost like you're starting all over again. So, what was the next city that you opened and what was it like? What was the process for you guys to open up a new market?
1: So, it was exceedingly difficult to open up a new market. Uh, We focused a lot of energy on New York City at first, just because it was so concentrated. You could take the subway, walk from spot to spot. Like, we knew you know, people had money there, people wanted luxury experiences, people were always on the go, like it was important. Uh, Our second city was LA. I built out LA, like I went alone and built out LA while like New York was thriving and it was so difficult. It was like starting from scratch all over again um, in a completely different market and also being far away from the team and like a three hour time zone difference And, um, not that that's, like, that crazy of a difference, but, you know, uh, it, it makes a difference. Um, and rebuilding, like, all the style, like, a whole new set of stylists, a whole new team leader, a whole new, um, just everything we needed to rebuild everything and we needed to uh, operationally la was a lot more challenging because you're driving from place to place and there's a ton of traffic in la so you know the the in-between times are different the zones are different um all of that kind of stuff is 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 much more complicated i think especially in a driving city or um and then also parking costs a lot so like sometimes like you know a stylist was going to a fancy hotel and getting saddled with like a $30 parking fee which you know kind of takes away a lot of what they're making um and that was you know not okay so we uh so we like you know had had to basically we had to Rebuild it all over again in a different city. It was exceedingly difficult, but I think from that we learned to make processes and kind of like a playbook of how to redo it um, to implement in our other cities for growth. And that made it um, a lot easier. And also, you know, instead of launching one category at a time, we launched multiple categories. We launched hair and makeup at the same time in L.A. where us, we launched just hair, then makeup, then nails in, L- in New York. And, like, it was a slow progression, a slow and easy progression for when we were ready. You know, we had more of an expectation when you go to a new city but have people who want it in both cities. Um, so, like, you have to level up your game and also, like, create – Uh, different processes to make sure you can deliver the same product you do like in a different place. Yeah, I I think
0: that's so on point in terms of like when you're launching a new market, it's like you're starting all over again and you really need a playbook to, to be able to replicate exactly what you did because you're not going to individually be able to open up every market. You're going to at a certain point when you scale, you're going to bring on other people, other teammates who are going to need to know exactly what you do, how you build it out, what services are offered, what thing, what how you recruit the your supply, how you recruit your demand, how you launch, how the brand communicates that you've launched a new market, all these different things, right? Um, so one thing that you mentioned that was really interesting about when you opened up LA versus New York was that you were launching with multiple services. And I think what's unique about your business in terms of Glam Squad is the fact that it's not just about the, it's not a, a, single ser, a singular service. And, and I think there's more what you see, like for example, Uber right they have Uber where you get a ride then Uber Eats which is a similar service based off like the generally the same infrastructure you know if if you want to send someone a package using Uber you can order like Uber Uber where they deliver the package for you so there are all these things based off a core infrastructure and the core infrastructure that you guys had built on Glam Squad was a marketplace between um, beauty stylists and consumers and obviously getting your hair done is one of those things getting blowouts is one thing but there're many different services uh, extend there. So, how did you think about launching new services? What was required in terms of like, you know, launching those as almost like new product lines? Were they just different services that were really easy to layer in on the app, or was it complicated to like manage what services a service pro- provider could administer? Like, what did that kind of look like?
1: So, we still only do three services, like or three core areas. I guess we. I think there's like some haircuts or now there's something where you can get like a person from physique 57 to come to you. But um like we do hair, makeup and nails and we didn't do any coloring of hair and and for a long time we didn't do any cuts of hair. So um basically no stylist can do two things. It's it's like a pit crew. So you have to think of it's The whole concept of the brand is to make getting ready a whole lot easier. It's the same concept I thought of in the shower, that getting ready was too difficult. Um, And I wish there was a better way to do it, that I would look better at the end product. So no stylist does two things. A lot of stylists are like, I do hair, I do makeup, or I do both. You're like, well, pick one. Stay in one lane because we want the best of the best in each category to be able to execute in that category. And then also just for client efficiencies, you can get your hair, your makeup, and your nails done in an hour, ready to go, looking perfect, you know, all the modalities. And you don't have to worry about, oh, well, it's going to take two hours because, you know, whatever, Sally does hair and the makeup. So, you know, it was mostly about client efficiencies, making um, getting ready a lot easier. And I think when you launch a different um, like category, it was equally as difficult. Uh, It wasn't as difficult because usually there was more demand for the category, but but it was difficult because we just wanted to make it really amazing, really great. So, the quality really had to be there. Um, you know, carrying all the makeup from place to place it was a lot heavier than carrying the hair supplies from place to place because um, there's just more of it. Um, and then also cleaning of the brushes and, and you know, the nails needed, needed different things, different tools and... You know things could spill, so it was like we always got a specialist in the category to to lead the growth of the category. But um, you know it was it was always challenging to put on another category, but it was also very exciting, and it was so exciting to kind of like see the vision come to life of you know being able to have all of these amazing beauty services. In the comfort of your own home you didn't have to go anywhere you didn't have to you know go out of your way traveling half hour each way to to go to an appointment somebody came to you and you know it it was the ultimate inconvenience uh
0: one thing i want to talk about is is growth right uh growth on both the supply side and the demand side so what were the practices that you guys used to grow your um your stylist space as well as your user base? Were you doing stuff with referrals um, or were you, was it just paid growth or, um, you know, how, how did you think about growth on both sides? As a, after you had like an initial amount of scale where you're like, this is, this marketplace is working. Now we need to like grow, really grow it up.
1: So uh, at the beginning we had insane word of mouth. So we had uh, a chance you're gonna book in 14 days. So it was, like, incredibly high that you'll book within two weeks. Um, And most people would book within a week of each other. And we had some heavy-duty clients. So for growth, a lot of it initially was word of mouth. Uh, We did not do a lot of paid growth. We did not do a lot of paid ads. Like, Instagram was not, um, like, the Instagram of today. Like, it wasn't something that, like, people, like, had their eyes glued to. They were just like, oh, like, here's – one artistic photo like let me post it like it was like bloggers were just coming up in the world of like like are they like editors so it was definitely a different climate back then but um for growth a lot of it was word of mouth a lot of it was kind of guerrilla marketing and events we tried to you know it's a very emotional service so Uh, you know we make you look amazing and we try to connect with a lot of things in the community every kind of you know charity event we basically were everywhere that we could possibly be to facilitate growth because we kind of needed to educate people how it worked and So we went to, I don't know, we went to like every business and did like a makeover takeover. We would go in at lunchtime to so many businesses and glam people up and literally sit and download the app on everybody's phone and give them like a credit to book again. And, you know, everyone would come out of lunch being so happy. Then we would book like the same business for their like holiday parties or like as a perk for their customer I mean not their customers but as a perk for their like employees and then we would do just like every event we were at you know Coachella we were at the Super Bowl we were at the Oscars we were at like your grandma's bake sale like we were like literally at every event that had women at it um from every like financial conference to every like mom's event to every wedding event we also developed like I also developed like a huge wedding category which was really exciting because um you know and all of these things were were big parts of our growth especially because and we did a lot of referrals a lot of gifting it makes the perfect gift Uh, I remember early on, we got something from the app store. It was like the perfect Mother's Day gift. Um, And we were, our app was listed. So, you know, we did a lot of, referrals are really important. I think you really need to build that in. And I think also gifting is really important. You need to make that a big part of it. And another, and word of mouth. And I think people really focus so heavily on paid search today which obviously it's scalable, but I think there's a, a level of stickiness. Like I get so many ads a day. I watch so many ads a day. I'm like inundated with ads from my email to my Google search to just everywhere I look that like a lot of them I don't care about or pay attention to, or, you know, like it doesn't really matter. And you have such like a high high um you have to pay so much to get um you know like a good like for a click these days so sometimes it's not worth like the the cost of acquiring the customer um and i know that that's the case in a lot of cpg brands it's very expensive to acquire the customer And once they have them, how repeatable is the product? So ours is kind of like, you also would naturally share it with your friends. It's fun to, you know, get a group glam, glam together. It's fun to, you know, if you're at a bachelorette party or if you're at like someone's wedding and... You know, it's like you're like a like your mom is seeing you get your hair done or all the bridesmaids get their hair done. They're wondering, what's that? Let me book it. Put it on my iPad. So there was a lot of we had extremely strong word of mouth and a huge like a very high net promoter score. People talked about us a lot, and we were buzzworthy. And that was part of, you know, the the joy of building the business was, creating a lot of momentum in that way of course we did you know a lot of crazy publicity stunts we did campaigns we like you know wrapped ubers we did fashion weeks we did everything we could possibly do to be everywhere that our customer was we did every boutique fitness class that was cool we did you know deals with like like women's shopping like nordstrom's and intermix and things like that anywhere that our customer was we were there too and you like there was no way you couldn't see us you could not avoid us that was how we did it
0: yeah and i I think what's what's really cool is thinking about that initial use case you were talking about it's like we're here to help you get ready easier and then once you've like nailed that down and you've proven out that that can work for anything that someone's getting ready for like really dialing in and becoming specific like okay we're gonna help these people get ready for their conference. We're gonna help these people get ready for fashion week. We're gonna be here at Coachella where friends are getting ready to go out to a music festival. So now you've you've gone from like just generic, like our service is working to this to really dialing in to the use cases. The other thing that really jumped out um, that I think is really important about uh, is, is the difference between brand like exposure in terms of like people like seeing your brand and actually using your service or trying your product Um, It's almost like there's a massive gap, but once someone actually uses your services, uses the product or like tries a new product, all of a sudden it's like light bulb goes off. It's like, ah, okay, I know what that is. And it's good in your case, you said you had really strong organic numbers. So clearly the metric for you guys was all about how do we get a glam squad stylist to do someone's appointment? Because once they do it, that person's gonna be like, ah, I know what this is and I can come back to it. And I think that's something that's so important because it's not like growing a brand is not just about all the clicks you're getting. Yes, you have to get clicks. You have to drive awareness. You have to be there, but getting someone to like really take the jump on trying something new, because most people are like creatures of habit uh, and like really getting them to like try it and be like, ah, okay, that's it. And I think what you had mentioned about like We literally went to like offices and made people download the app and made them experience it so they would be able to be like, ah, okay, I can come back to this. I know what this is and it's not just me seeing a subway ad which is obviously a nice thing but when you experience something it's totally different.
1: Yeah, I think it, when you experience something it's just a lot stickier and you want to build that emotional element with your customer. You want to have them rely on you and make their part their part of their life better and honestly like we had a huge level of addiction and I think we still do of um just customers who were completely addicted and you know I meet people every day even to this day who are like oh my god like that's you like oh my god I'm I did it like this many times a week I love it but I I had one story of um of a girl who I it was very early days like and she had like a shampoo brand uh like it was like a natural shampoo for for pregnant women and I was like oh my god like can we partner with you it ended up not being like a partnership we did but I was just like oh perfect something in the shower and like I love this shampoo let's do it um she did not want to have anything to do with me. She was like, no, she had never tried Glam Squad. She thought we were too like too lame for her and like her um, shampoo. So anyhow, like we sent her a free one. She was like, I don't know, if, like we can do a deal. I was like, okay, thanks so much. Here's here's a free one. Just try it on the house. Tell me what you think. Um, literally she she got super hooked but a month like a couple months later i was building out the la team i was i was starting from scratch in la i was building up the service and this girl like begs me to have lunch and she takes me to like a very fancy place for lunch and i'm just kind of like wow she's so nice now um she basically like hunted me down she like Wind and dined me and then she was like i'm speaking at a conference this week i need a glam squad i was like what we don't we haven't even like background checked the the beauty professionals yet like you can't get one she's like what are you talking about she was so forceful that i was like okay fine like uh i'll make an exception for you but you know in a good way so I think if you can make your product have that addictive quality or have like a level of emotional stickiness um that's really important and and what you're you're getting people hooked on is the feeling of having, you know, something that you can't achieve on your own. You can't achieve that level of makeup on your own. You can't achieve that level of hair on your own. Uh and maybe if you could it would take hours um but but chances are you can't and chances are you feel a whole lot better when you have it done and you don't have to even move a muscle you just roll out of the shower like slap on a robe and go for it so i think that feeling was really addictive.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a great kind of barometer in an anecdotal sense. It's like, how do you make a business that people care about? And that if it's not there, they're going to be upset. Right. Um, so even having those like anecdotes are probably really, um, you know, that's really encouraging when you're building your business. Cause those are the types of signals, even in an anecdotal sense that you want to be seeing to make sure your service is actually needed and wanted and not just like another throwaway sort of service that no one needs. So, um, anyway, as we wrap up here, um, you know, just wanted to, um, wanted to see where we can find you online. Where can our audience find you? Are you on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, where can they find more about you and GlamScore?
1: Um, you can find more, I guess, I don't know what to say for this, but, um, I'm on Instagram, the real Victoria Gloria. I'm also on, you can follow Glam Squad at Glam Squad on uh, Instagram. You can also follow me on LinkedIn, Victoria Eisner. And you can also, I guess, follow, book on the app if you want. You can use my code and get $20 off. Let me see what the code is. I think it's V.
0: What what what's your code? <laughs> Let's find it. V I. It's V Eisner. is
1: my code. So book with that. Get twenty off.
0: All right, DTC Pod. You you heard it here first. Um, no, and and I think you know. Thank you for coming on. It's been really fun to hear about how you built the business. I know it's something that I don't necessarily use uh, as a guy, but I have had Glam Squad come to my house to do. Uh, you know, my girlfriend and her friends and like they've done it in my own home so um, it's just really cool to see how these sort of businesses that have so that have reaches in across so many markets and so many cities um, how they're built so anyway congrats on everything loved hearing the story and thanks for joining us on the podcast Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes, where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.